Why don't you take your Bibles and open them to the book of 1 Peter this morning, chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Last week I opened with an illustration about power, trying to answer the question, where does power come from? For example, a car, where does a car's power come from? And again, the answer is in the gasoline, that the engine parts can't move themselves. Similarly, we asked, where's God's power found? And the answer is in his word. God has placed his power in his word. I want to start us off today with another important question, just to get us thinking. And that is, how do things grow? This is another one of those general questions that's extremely important to know the answer to. How do things grow? Some people devote their entire lives, their entire professions to trying to answer that question, trying to perfect that question. I was raised in Los Angeles, so when I came up here, I partly thought people were joking when they said the local high school had an agriculture department. Like, why would it? Why would that be? But, you know, farming, agriculture, it's big business. It's important business. And mostly agriculture, it's about that question. How do things grow? How can we make them grow better, faster, bigger, stronger? And from the beginning, mankind has been trying to master the task of making things grow. I mean, you've had the first couple, Adam and Eve, God essentially gave them the task of gardening or farming. But throughout history, man has studied and innovated all to make things grow better. And one of the first developments for crops was irrigation. If we can just get more water to our crops than comes naturally through rainfall, things are going to grow. And so man dug canals, animal domestication, the wheel, bronze working. These all contributed to growth, helping things grow. Oxen led plows could till the ground faster and bronze Forge sickles could reap the harvest faster. And then man learned, if you know, if you can let the field lie fallow every once in a while, just let it be, it, it regains nutrients and will actually be more productive. All these advancements throughout the years. The Middle Ages saw crop rotation come into play, which meant they had to spend less time letting the fields lie fallow. It could be more productive. This is the time they also saw the introduction of manure as a way to help the plants grow better. And man was just, again, pursuing that question, how do things grow? How can we help things grow? These farming advancements throughout history allowed the rise of civilization itself. I mean, just think, if you had to spend your day finding your own food every single day, you wouldn't have time to do anything else. You would be too busy. But if a few people could specialize in, in providing food for everyone else, then you would be free to learn, read, trade, build, whatever. Mankind's pursuit of making things grow has in turn enabled mankind to grow. And this is really evident in the Industrial Revolution, 1700s, 1800s. We saw that massive population explosion. It was largely due to advancements in agriculture. Man was continuing to learn how things grow. Man identified that plants require nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus to grow. And this led to the development of the first synthetic fertilizers to replace manure. Horse or oxen-led plows were replaced by tractors. Mechanical seed drills came into play where they allowed seeds to be evenly and perfectly distributed, and they greatly reduced the number of seeds needed to plant a field. Automatic harvesters and threshers made everything faster, and come wartime, chemicals developed for war led to the creation of pesticides to keep plants from being devoured by insects. Airplanes enabled crop dusting. Pump-driven sprinklers enabled greater water and and irrigation demand. And then nowadays, 
this whole agriculture industry has gone high-tech. Vehicles called combine harvesters combine reaping, threshing, and winnowing all in one. And now computers and, and GPS and tracking systems, satellites, are used to track crops and increase yields. And now we have genetic engineering. And literally modifying food, reprogramming crops to be resistant to salt, cold, drought, insects, weeds, chemicals, you name it. All this in the name of making things grow. Making them grow better, faster, bigger, stronger. Like I said, if you can find an, an answer to that question of how things grow, then you're in business and you're on the right track. Now, just like last week, I'll make an obvious transition here. New question for you. How things grow. Let me ask you now, how do Christians grow? How do Christians grow? I mean, learning about crops, yeah, that's nice, but there's a type of growth that's even more important, really the most important, and that's spiritual growth. So so how does that happen? How does that work? How do you grow as a believer in Christ? What do you do? Can you do anything? Is God alone responsible, or does he give us a, a part to play? And if he does give us a part, what does that look like? What are we responsible for? What does spiritual growth look like? These are, these are important questions. And needless to say, growth is important. If a child stops growing physically, something is wrong. They should be growing. Likewise, if a child of God stops growing spiritually, something is wrong. They should be growing. A lack of growth is a sign of a greater problem. For some, it may even be a sign of spiritual death, that they never have been made alive in Christ to begin with. So we need to learn about spiritual growth, both how to grow, how to grow better. It's important, needless to say. And and thankfully, our text in 1 Peter 2 addresses just that. If you haven't already, again, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We come now to the beginning of chapter 2 as we go verse by verse through this book of the Bible. And as we get to the beginning of chapter 2, we're we're treading on famous ground. These are well-known verses we're going to cover today. And I'm excited to get to them because they're they're well-known, but they're so simple yet valuable and practical instruction for our lives on, on how to grow. If you want to know how to grow as a Christian, this is one of those key verses that you want to turn to, 1 Peter 2. Verses 1 through 3. So read along with me our text for the morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 3. It begins, he says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it, you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Maybe some of you here today, you see some growth in your spiritual life, but not as much as you'd like to see. How can you grow? Or maybe some, you come and you've got some sin in your life, you're struggling with it, you feel it often gets the better of you. It's just nipping at your heels. It's always there. How can you grow? Or maybe some of you, you're not growing that much at all. You've kind of stagnated. You've plateaued in your spiritual life. You're not going anywhere. You feel more distant from God than before. How can you grow? It's a question for all of us. There's not a person in this room or in the world that's a believer that has finished growing. You don't finish growing until you die. 
You never finish. We all have room to grow. So how can you grow? We want to turn to God's instruction this morning through the Apostle Peter to help answer this question. Since our question is a how-to, I want to suggest an answer in the form of a how-to. And so from 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, I want to suggest to you how to grow in Christ-likeness. Simple, how to grow in Christ-likeness. It's simple but valuable. And if you want a little outline to follow along, I'll give you four steps along these lines. But how to grow in Christ-likeness. First things first, first step, step number one, seed. Seed. Let me explain. Look, Look at chapter two, verse one. This first step comes from just the first word, the first word of chapter 2, at least in the NASB, therefore. Therefore. This tells us that this opening verse of chapter 2 is being built off of what just came from before and what did just come before. Look back at chapter 1. Look up at verse 22. He says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again. Not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. And what is that seed? He says that is through the living and enduring word of God. So what's he saying at the beginning of chapter 2 with this therefore? It's kind of a no-brainer. But I'll say it anyway. It should be obvious. But his point is this. You can't grow as a Christian unless you're a Christian. You have to first be a true believer to grow. That's his point. This instruction is for those who, who have been born again through the imperishable word, the imperishable seed of God's word. God has changed them. He's given them new life. Therefore, they should grow. If this hasn't happened to you, you can't grow. If you're still dead in your sins, you can't grow. But if you've been made alive, growth can begin. And it should, for God wants us to grow. He will ultimately cause this growth. But just as a farmer can water the field, so God gives us a role to play. But first things first, step one is seed. You need to have the right seed implanted in you. Listen to this. You don't have to turn here, but James 1, 21. He says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. He says, Receive the word, the seed of the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. You have to have the right seed implanted in your soul if you're to be saved and, today, if you're to grow. So as our focus last week, nonetheless, it provides the foundation for this week. We saw, you know, in most of chapter 1, Peter's focus is on the beginning of the Christian life. How does that life begin? Now he's going to get into the continuation of the Christian life. Okay, so now you've come to trust Christ. Now you've been born again. Now what? And he moves on. So now in chapter 2, he's starting to move on to the continuation of the Christian life. You can't put the cart before the horse, though. First things first, that's salvation, that's conversion. You need to turn from your sins. You need to turn to Christ in his finished work on the cross to forgive you of your sins, to pay the penalty that you deserve, to turn God's wrath away, to bring God's love in your life. You have to trust him. It's the only way. You need Jesus, so... 
So turn to him and God will give you new life. He will make you born again. You can't cause new life in yourself. That which is dead cannot come to life itself. But God will bring you to life as you turn from your sins and, and just trust Christ for that new life. He will do that work. So have you done that? Have you decisively broke away from your past and, and turned to the Lord in faith for what he's done on the cross for you? Then and only then can you and should you worry about spiritual growth. If you haven't gotten to that point, the rest of this sermon is probably not going to be of much value to you. But for those who have, who've come alive in the Lord, now we want to study about, okay, now what? Now how do we grow? And that's what God wants. He wants us to grow. He's pleased. He's glorified when we grow. But the first step is, is first, it's seed, the right seed, the divine seed. God's seed has to be implanted in your life to cause life before you can grow. So our first step, step number one is seed. Step number two then is weed, as in you need to weed, weed. Look at verse one again, chapter two, verse one. He says, therefore, putting aside or put aside all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. We can stop there. The second step to grow in Christ-likeness is to weed. It's to remove those things which hinder your growth. And as you know, you know this, weeds, they compete with what you're trying to grow for, for light, for water, for nutrients. They get in the way. Where weeds exist, the good crop suffers. And my neighbor, his yard is just being overrun by weeds because he's not home most of the time. And you can just see them. You can watch them just suck in the life out of the good plants. It's what they do. And they're costly. There's a study done in Australia where they found that weeds in a given year cost farmers $1.5 billion in weed prevention activities and then another $2.5 billion in lost crop yields. Now, that's a lot of money just from weeds. Weeds are a problem. They they must be removed. They hinder growth. So if you want your your plants to grow, you've got to first get rid of the weeds. And the same is true with the weeds in your life. Figuratively speaking, if you're going to grow, you have to first get rid of the weeds. But think about this. What are they? What what are those weeds in your life that you have to get rid of? What, What does Peter identify as these weeds, these bad things in your life that hinder your spiritual growth? Does he identify these weeds with, you know, poverty, sickness, persecution, suffering? You might expect him to do that because he's writing to believers who are suffering. And you have a lot of health and wealth preachers today who, who say just that. It's your, your life is not going the way it should. It's because you're not healthy enough. You're not wealthy enough. You need to fix these problems. These are the weeds you need to remove before you can really enjoy life. Is that what Peter says, though? No, no. He doesn't say this. Health, wealth, suffering, these aren't the problems. Those aren't the weeds. In fact, God uses suffering like fertilizer to help you grow more. So so then what are the weeds? What is hindering your your spiritual growth, your true spiritual growth in this life? What's, What's holding you back? Sin. Sin are the weeds. It's not the bad things in life that take you down. It's the sinful things. It's sin. You need to identify the sins in your life. You need to remove them far from you. Specifically in verse 2, Peter says, put them aside, throw them off, be done with them. 
The word in verse 1 for putting aside, it was originally used of, of putting off or, or taking off a soiled garment. We've got a newborn baby, so you're stuck with it. Baby illustrations, they're just fresh in my mind. You're going to get a lot of them. Now, let me just say this. Although infants are small, don't let them fool you. They have the ability to just really fill up a diaper, if you know what I mean. I'll leave it at that. No need to say any more, but it's just amazing. And when that dirty diaper comes, I mean, boy, the, you want to get that thing off and just throw it away as fast as possible. I mean, just get that off. Get it away. Be done with it. Just take it away from me. That's how you should see your sin, though. And that's how you should respond to your sin. Just, just get it off. Get it away. Be done with it for good. It, it's nasty. I don't want that. That. Get it away. That's the picture here. Just lay aside like a dirty garment. Take it off. Put it far away from you. That's what he's saying you should do to your sins. Deal away with them and do it quickly. Peter mentions five sins here, five sinful weeds in particular that we need to rid ourselves of if we are to grow. And they all have a relational dimension. Do you see that? They're all relational. I mean, these aren't the only sins you need to remove from your life, but he focuses on these relational ones. Because if you remember, just back in verse 22, he gave us the command to what? To love one another. And if you are to do that, if you are to truly love one another in the Lord, you have to remove specifically these relational sins, these relational weeds. If you're going to put on love for others, you have to first put off this dirty garment of of relational sins. So he gives five in particular, five especially destructive sins in your relationship with others. And they're all the opposite of love. So let's look at these now. What's the first one? Chapter 2, verse 1. Put aside what? All malice. Malice is the first term. It's kind of an umbrella term. It's it's a broad term. All these others are going to fall under it. Malice in the Greek, it's a general term. It just means badness. You know, that which is bad. It's just very general. Wickedness, ill will, evil vibes, you know, whatever you want to call it. Malice, it's the desire to harm others, to cause injury. Physically or, or verbally or emotionally, any way, any dimension. It's just that desire to cause someone harm. You ever hurt someone where you didn't mean to do it? You know, an accident? I remember playing baseball as a kid, and I watched this scene unfold in front of me. My friend was playing first base, and the batter hit a you know, grounder to third. But the third baseman had, you know, kind of a weak arm, so his throw to first was short. It took a bounce in the dirt and just popped up and hit my friend, the first baseman, right in the mouth. He was fine, but he had a swollen lip after. The third baseman didn't mean to do it. He wasn't trying to hurt the kid. Here's malice. If you want to understand malice, malice is when you hurt people like that, but you do mean to do it. Like you want to hurt them, either physically or verbally or emotionally. You want to cause someone harm. You want to see someone pay. Deep down in your heart, you're glad that they are hurting or suffering. That's malice. That's what malice is. And where malice exists, love flees. It's an expression of hatred. You may say, I don't hate anybody. Well, but if you act in ill will, you are expressing hatred toward others. And notice another key word here in verse 1. It comes right before malice. Do you see it? He says it three times, in fact, in this short verse. All. He says, put aside all malice. And put aside all of, all of these things. There's no room. You can't pick and choose. You can't harbor any ill will in your heart for others. And even if someone is 
really offended you. They've really done something to just tick you off. You still sin yourself when you respond in any sort of wickedness or ill will or just even in your own heart and anger or vengeance toward them. You may think, hey, I'm a pretty loving person, so isn't it okay if I just not love this one person? Do I get a pass on just not really loving this one person? You don't. It's not okay. He says, put aside all malice. There's no exceptions. There's no excuses. Put it aside. Like I said, this malice, it's an umbrella term. The others in this verse, they fall under it, under it and help explain it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. And the rest of these terms, they come in pairs, two pairs. The first two go together, the second two to go, go together. So let's look at these. He says, put aside all malice. And then he says, and all deceit and hypocrisy. Deceit and hypocrisy. These go together. And you know what these mean. Deceit. It's where you fool people, you mislead them, you lie to them. The word was used of of bait on a fish hook. And it makes sense. When you think about it, fishing is a pretty deceptive activity. Hypocrisy, we say that word a few weeks ago, it's the practice of acting differently around different people. It's it's of not being who you really are. It's it's being two-faced. This word was used used of ancient actors. They would wear masks in a play to be someone they really weren't, to portray someone else. And that, that's a good picture. That's what people do today. They, they act a different way. They wear a mask around people to pretend they're one way when in reality they're a different way. That's hypocrisy. And both of these, though, deceit and hypocrisy, they're both ways of distorting the truth. With deceit, you deceive a person with your words. With hypocrisy, you deceive a person with your actions. But both are their means of falsehood and dishonesty, treachery. And so what he's saying here is, when it comes to these as well, put them off. You, you have to put these aside as well. Put aside your falsehood, and he's going to tell us, replace them with, with honesty. Replace them instead with the truthfulness about you. Now, I hope, though, you know, as we study these, you're not sitting there thinking, you know, I'm, I'm not like this. I'm not a deceiver. I'm not a hypocrite. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. All people are, to some degree, these things. Because these sins, they're common to man. Every single person at times falls into these sins. They they come with our fallen sinful nature. I'm sorry, you're just born with them. You may not be a deceiver or a hypocrite habitually, but at times you fall into deceiving others. And at times you, you fail to practice everything you preach, don't you? Unless you're perfect. If this were not true, God through Peter would not need to instruct believers to put them aside. We wouldn't need this verse if this weren't the case, but we do. The difference, though, is that believers can come to see their sin for what it is, to turn from it, turn against it. So are you doing that? Do you fight your sin? Do you you take your sins to the cross for forgiveness? Are you replacing them with, with truth, with honesty? That's the point here. The Bible doesn't teach... Spiritual perfection. That comes when you die. That comes when Christ comes. For now, though, the Bible teaches spiritual growth. So are you growing? Living things grow. So are you moving in the right direction? And people always complain. Probably the number one complaint against the church is what? It's full of hypocrites. Just full of hypocrites. Guess what? Yeah, it's true. 
And if someone ever tells you that, you can say, well, the church is full of hypocrites, but, you know, there's, there's always room for one more, so why don't you join us? <laughs> Everyone sins in these ways. No one is perfect, but the point is, if you want to grow, you can put them aside, you can cast them off, and you can put on Christ in return. That's what you need to do. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, though, look at this uh, last pair of vices in verse 1. It says, put aside all malice. And then we have deceit and hypocrisy. And then the last two, envy and slander. Envy and slander. These two are twins as well. Deceit and hypocrisy are practiced in a person's face. Envy and slander practiced behind a person's back. Envy first, it's the attitude of those who resent what others have. It's a resentful longing for another person's possessions or accomplishments or qualities in life. You want what they have. Envy often leads to slander. You can't have what they have. And you can't take what they have away from them, so at least you can take away their reputation. You slander. Slander, it's like character assassination. You're trying to take other people down in the eyes of others. You see someone else, they're somehow better than you, either by social status or paycheck or spirituality. They're better than you. You don't like that. So you want you want to take them down. You want to take them down a notch or two. And the only way you know how is just a slander. So you use your words. If you don't know what slander is, just wait. This is election season. Watch TV. You'll, you'll see slander. But again, both of these need to be put off. These are weeds that, that need to be removed from you. Why? Because these inhibit your growth. These are slowing you down. These are taking you in the wrong direction. If Christians would just seek the good of others, if they'd try and make other people or take other people up a notch instead of down, these sins wouldn't exist. They would be replaced by love, and that's what you need to do. You should want others around you to succeed and to do well and to be blessed. You should want people to be blessed in life because you love them. And why wouldn't you? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, as the Bible says. Not the opposite. Don't rejoice when someone else is weeping and then don't weep when someone else is rejoicing. Think about this. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. If we just carried out this verse, there'd be no marital strife, no father or parent-children strife, no relational strife. It just wouldn't exist. This is love. It comes back to love. The love that God calls us to back in chapter 1, verse 22, to love one another, it can only exist when these weeds are pulled from the church's soil or from your soil. So are you loving others? What do you need to do today to remove these sins from your life? How can you grow by removing them and being different? How can you instead put on love for others? If you don't know what that looks like, just think of the opposite. Take this little list in chapter 2, verse 1, these list of vices. And if you want a picture of what it looks like to love others, just, just do the opposite. What is the opposite of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander? What's the opposite look like? One commentator, 
I. Howard Marshall. He, t- he tells us, he gives a good quote. He says, love, love does not act from spite. It acts for the good of others. Love does not practice cunning or act as a mask for selfish motives. It is honest and open-handed in its dealings. Love does not desire to be better than other people or to destroy other people's reputations. It rejoices in the success of other people. It's glad to give them praise and commendation, end quote. That's what you need to do. Put on love. Take this list of weeds, remove them, but then plant the opposite. Start doing the opposite. And that's actually the pattern of Scripture. Did you know that? You know, First, you need to weed. First, you need to put off the sin in your life. But you can't stop there. Not enough. You have to then replace it. Put on the righteous behavior. In fact, I'll do a quick rabbit trail here. Make it quick. But turn to Ephesians 4 with me. I want to show you this just from one text. Ephesians chapter 4. It's not enough to simply stop sinning and to be neutral. God doesn't want you just to stop sinning. He wants you to start being righteous as well and to put on the positive fruit. It's not enough to just remove the weeds. You must also bear fruit. And the pattern of Scripture shows us put off, but then put on. In Ephesians 4, look at verse 22. Paul is saying, you know, you didn't learn Christ in order to be turned over to to wickedness and ungodliness. So how did you learn Christ? He says, verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you what? You lay aside the old self. That's our same word from 1 Peter. You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. It's the pattern. Put off, be renewed in your mind, and then put on. Over and over again in Scripture, put off, put on. Put off the sin, put on the righteous counterpart. Now, what does this mean? In one sense, understand, this is a one-time deal. When you were saved and born again, you once and for all put off the old man, and once and for all put on the new man. It just happened. But in another sense, though, as these weeds, you know, as weeds need to be continually removed, In another sense, you need to keep doing this. You need to continually be putting off the sin that pops back up in your life and continually be putting on righteousness. So that's that's the Christian life. That's Christian growth. You understand that positionally, you've been made clean and new in Christ. But then practically, day by day, you still strive to put off, put on. That's what you do. If you want to grow, this is what you do. Consider a, a given sin... Repent of it and replace it. Just remember that. Repent and replace. Repent and replace. I'll show it to you. Let's look at verse 25. This is the pattern. You're still in Ephesians 4, verse 25. He says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, there's the word. He says, put off falsehood. What? Speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Put off falsehood, but it doesn't stop there. But then what do you have to do? Put on honesty. Put on truthfulness. Put off the falsehood, replace it with truthfulness. Look at verse 29. I'll just give you a few more examples. Verse 29. He says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, 
according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. What's he say? Put off unwholesome speech. You can't stop there. You have to replace it. Put on what? Wholesome speech. Edifying speech. Speech that builds up. He says, put off that speech that tears down, but then start putting on that speech that builds up. One more. Verse 31. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. That sounds pretty familiar. Does this ring a bell to you? It kind of sounds like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So, so what do you do about this? Okay, you want to grow. So he says, put these aside. Just like Peter says, put them aside. But, but do you stop there? You can't stop there. Verse 32. Repent and replace. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as... God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's what you need to do. If you're struggling with these relational sins that we've covered this morning, if you're struggling, and you may be, you may have a genuine struggle with these relational sins, these malicious, kind of angry, hurtful, hateful sins. First realize they're choking you. They're hindering your spiritual growth. You're not going to grow if these are popping up in your life. So repent and replace. Turn from them. Turn to the cross for forgiveness. It's already been purchased for you. And then replace them with Christ-likeness. Seek to be kind. Find ways to be loving. Exchange forgiveness. Remembering that this is how God in Christ treated us. Did he not? You can turn back with me with, uh, with me to 1 Peter. Back to 1 Peter now. So how do you grow in Christ-likeness? Step two is we. You have to put off the sin in your life, repent of it, deal away with it if you are to grow. And you follow that up by replacing the weeds with righteous behavior. But here's something interesting. If you're back in 1 Peter now. Scripture, like I said, it has a very clear pattern of when it comes to growth, put off, put on. Like I said, put off, put on, put off, put on. But in our text... Peter just told us to put off. He doesn't tell us to put on. He, he changes it up. He actually does something that we don't expect. He, he goes deeper. He's not doing something different. No, he knows the pattern. But he's giving us a more fundamental step in Christian growth. He's taking us deeper. And this is why these words are so helpful. Yes, step two, if you want to grow, step two is weed. Remove the sin. Put off the sin. But he says, instead of step three being replace them with righteousness, he takes us deeper and he says, step three is nourish. I'll explain that, nourish. Look at verse one, verse two again. He says, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. Let's go through this. In verse two, we have the one and only command here in this whole passage. There's just one command, and it's long. Long for the word. That's the real command here. Long for the word. And notice Peter, he does not give us a list of virtues to replace our vices with. He doesn't do it. He doesn't say put on kindness and forgiveness and love. That's true, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he gets at our hearts and our desires. Peter knows, let's get this, if you fix your heart problem, if you fix what your heart desires, 
then your actions will surely follow. He knows if you get this right, if you change your heart, you don't need a list. You don't need a list of what to do. You're going to do it. If your heart changes and you desire the right thing, you're going to do it. He's getting to the source of godly living, which is a changed heart with changed desires. That's going to lead you to a true growth, an inside-out growth, which is meaningful growth. The command here, it's, it's long for the word. This is not a passive receiving. Like, let me just come to church and just, here, give me the word. It's an act of seeking. Like, let me go get it. I need to find it. To long for is to deeply desire, to yearn for, to zealously seek. This word is used of close friends or family, not seeing one another for a long time, just longing to be reunited. Parents probably know this one the best. Just imagine being apart from your kids for like a month. Just that desire, you, you want to see them. You, you want to see them again. You long for them. That feeling of longing, he says, you should have a, of the word, of scripture, of God's truth. You should long for it. Rightly grasp what Peter is not telling us to do here. Notice what he's not telling us to do. He's not saying, read the word, or study, or meditate, or teach, or preach, or memorize, or search. Not telling us these things. These things are true. These things are commanded elsewhere. These things are important. But he's not saying that. He's taking us one step deeper than all of those things. He's telling us to desire the word. To want it. And if you do, you'll get it. You'll find it. You'll go after it. It's the most fundamental thing you could do is desire. We are creatures of desire. Everyone, deep down, you do what you want to do. That's how we operate. Deep down, you do what you really want to do. If you really want to watch TV, you will. You'll find a way. If you really want to laze around, you will. If you really want to spend time in the Word, you will. You can guilt people. That's eh, only going to last you a couple of weeks, though. Sooner or later, people will eventually do what they want to do. And a true devotion, though, to God's Word must come from within. The battle is fought and won in the realm of desire. Here we're told to desire what? To desire the pure milk of the word. By pure he means not watered down, trustworthy. Scripture is trustworthy, it's pure, it's satisfying. This ever happened to you? You ever gotten home one day and you just had this great desire for a tall, cold glass of rotten milk? Never happened to you? Never happened. I mean, just the smell of rotten milk from the top of the carton is enough to just make you throw the whole thing away. Nobody wants rotten milk. But the word, it's pure, he says. It's pure. It it delights those who drink it. And the same word that brought you life, which we studied last week, can also bring you growth. Same thing. Same source. What do you feed on spiritually? The pure milk of the word or spiritual junk food? You know, the world's wisdom, the world's spiritual counsel, it's like cotton candy. It's appealing to the masses, but it's of no nutritional value. In fact, it's bad for you. Spiritual junk food. Junk food is bad enough for adults, but just think, what if you fed an infant junk food? What if you took a baby and instead of milk, you just gave them soda? I seriously wonder if they would survive. I don't think they would. Yet so many children of God drink only spiritual junk. And they still wonder why they don't grow. 
As Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you want to grow, it's pretty simple. Get the nourishment. Go to the source of the real nourishment. The word. Look at the beginning of verse 2 again. He tells us how to long for the pure milk of the word. How is it? How, how should we long for it? He says, like newborn babies. That's the picture. And I'm so glad I'm preaching this after we have a newborn, as opposed to before, before I was a, a young parent. Like newborn babies. First things first, it, this is not a bad thing when he says, be like a child here. You know, Paul and the writer of Hebrews, two other places in Scripture, they make a contrast between spiritual infants who can only handle milk, and the spiritually mature who are ready for the meat. And the point they're making is, you don't want to be a spiritual infant. You don't want the milk. You want the spiritual meat. That's not Peter's point, though. He's making a different illustration. He's not making a contrast. He's saying, you want to be the infant. You are the infant, and so go for the milk. The point he's making is, in the same way that an infant desires milk, you should desire the word. It's a good thing. As my wife and I learned just four months ago, newborn babies, they just want one thing. It's true. He's not making this up. They just want one thing, and that's milk. And that's the parallel here. It's, it's pretty simple. In the same way that a, a child longs for milk, you should long for the word. It just makes you ask. You should stop and ask yourself, okay, well, how exactly does a baby long for milk? Now, for one, they have a singular desire. They have a singular desire. Desire. They don't want anything else. I mean, try and take your favorite foods. Steak, lobster, even chocolate. Try giving it to an infant. They don't care. They don't want it. They have no desire for it. They're totally uninterested. They've got a one-track mind for milk. And you should have a one-track mind for Scripture. That's the point. Don't be distracted by the spiritual junk food. If you want to grow, if you want to grow, Go for the nourishment. Secondly, babies have a dominating desire. It's a singular desire. It's also a, it's just a dominating desire. When, baby desire. when a baby desires food, that's all that matters. That is all that matters. And as I'm sure you know, they will let everyone know that they want milk. They don't care who knows. If you're in a restaurant, if you're on an airplane, they don't care. They're going to let you know it's, it's time. This desire dominates them. And you cannot console a hungry baby any other way, we've found. You can try rocking them, sure. We had this move with Olivia. We just It's kind of like a, a lifting motion. We're just kinda, I think it would confuse her. That gets you like two minutes. Pacifier, she did not care about the pacifier. There's only one thing. There's only one way. Milk. Likewise, you should have a dominating desire for the word. It should just overwhelm you. You, you need it. Does this mean you should just sit in a room... Go to a monastery and just read your Bible 24-7? No. I mean, does a baby drink 24-7? No. But they, they do drink often enough, don't they? They drink often enough to receive nourishment. That's the way you should as well. If you do this, you will see growth. This is the means God uses to grow you. It's his word. Babies grow when fed. Christians grow when fed. And the more you're in the word, the more you share the mind of Christ, the more you hate sin, the more you cherish the cross, the more you love God, the more you live like it, the more you honor him, the more you grow. And the more you are satisfied. Now think about that. If babies don't get milk, they start crying their brains out. You think they're going to explode. 
Yet the instant they get it, it's the second after, it's just this perfect peace and satisfaction. The same will happen to you if you desire the word and then come to really feast on it. I mean, genuinely take it in. You'll find that, that peace in life. It doesn't mean your life gets all rosy. It just means you have the peace of God in you and you grow. Put all this together. This is our third step in how to grow in Christ-likeness. After you weed, after you remove the sin, then get straight your nourishment. Get straight your nourishment. Desire the word. Feed on it. Correct your heart's desires. If you do this, you don't need that list of things to put on. You will put on righteous behavior. But you don't need the list. If your heart's in the right place, you're going to do it. All that's left now is the fourth step, which isn't really a step, it's the result. But we'll do it anyway. Step number four is grow. Just quickly with this last one. Step number four, grow. It's really the result. Verse two. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So there it is. He says, by it, the word, you may grow in salvation. This verb, you may grow, it's in the passive, which means you're being grown. We've talked a lot about growth, but don't get it, don't get confused. God causes spiritual growth. God is the one who will cause your growth. But God has also determined the means of that growth, and it's his word. Just like a farmer can water the crop to help it grow, God has given you the means to help yourself grow, and that is his word. You're called to feed on it. This growth occurs at salvation, where you are transformed, but like I said earlier, it continues all life long. You never stop growing. If you do, something's wrong. And God wants to see growth. He's pleased. He's glorified when you grow. It's like a baby today. When you have a kid, you want to see them grow. It's very important that they grow. In fact, doctors and nurses go through a lot of trouble today to make sure babies grow. When we were in the hospital, they did all these things just to make sure she's growing. They made us count the number of diapers, number of feedings. They measured her weight, her length, her head circumference. Like All these things are just tracked over time. Why? They just want to make sure she's growing. That's what matters. They didn't give our baby an IQ test, an aptitude test, a, a strength lifting test, a speed test. That's not, that's not important. They gave her the only test that really matters, and that's it's growth. Are you growing? The same goes for God's children. Spiritual growth is what matters. You need to be seeing that growth. He says that by the word you may grow in respect to salvation. And I love this here. He doesn't say, you know, by the word you may grow in respect to the word. He didn't say, by the word, you may grow in respect to head knowledge. Because that's not the point. Our devotion to the word, it's not to fill our minds with head knowledge. It's not to make us puffed up. The goal is not to be able to quote more Bible verses than the guy next to you. That's not why we are devoted to the word. We don't worship the Bible. Rather, the Bible gets us to God. It shows us, it reveals us to God in a very close way. But through it, we can grow, not in respect to head knowledge, but in respect to salvation. That's what God wants us to see, or wants to see. He doesn't want to see us just sitting around doing nothing. He wants to see us growing, actively living out our salvation. That's how he's pleased. That's how he's glorified. So, if you want to grow, this is it. Begin with the right seed. Get rid of all the weeds. Provide the correct nourishment. And then watch God grow you. Just watch. Try it. 
This is how to grow in Christ-likeness. And that's what we're after, after all, Christ-likeness. God saved us so that we would be conformed to the image of his Son, Romans 8, 28-29. And so that's the measure of growth. How much are you like Christ? How can you be more like Christ? Let's finish up here full circle. Look at verse 3. Similar to how we began, he says, all this is true if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. Like we started with, like the right seed, this is the condition for spiritual growth. You can't grow as a Christian unless you're a Christian. If you've not tasted God's kindness, you're not going to want it. You're not going to want more of it. You're going to have no desire for it. It sounds simple, but you'd be surprised. A lot of people try it. A lot of people sit there deceived, thinking they're Christians. They're trying to grow, yet they lack the power. And they lack the desire because they've never tasted the kindness of God and salvation. Never been born again. They're just spinning their tires. They're not going anywhere. First, you have to taste God's kindness and salvation as you know and believe in the gospel. Psalm 34.8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That's where you need to start. To the world... God's not on the radar. Spiritual growth, desiring the word, it's not on the radar. But if you've tasted these things, you've been shown firsthand how good they are, you want more. How can you not? I mean, who doesn't want good things? And the Lord is good. And that's what it's about. It's about knowing God, getting to know him, enjoying him, getting to enjoy him for all eternity. So praise God for showing us his kindness If you have not tasted this, open the Bible, encounter Jesus in the Word, read the Gospels, understand the cross. God will reveal his kindness to you. Then you may come to desire the Word. Then you may come to grow. Father God, we pray to you now, thanking you for your Word of truth this morning and how we we do desire the Word. We cherish it. For those who have tasted your kindness, we thank you for revealing yourself to us and how we do desire your word. It gives life to our lives. It gives sight to our eyes. It's a lamp into our path. It guides us in the way we should go. It fills us with your truth. Thank you for your word. Help us to not worship, but cherish scripture. May we be devoted to it, that we might know you more, and worship you more, and become more like Christ. That's what it's about, Lord. For those here who who don't know you, Or maybe you are self-deceived and thinking they know you, but they have no real desire, no growth. Lord, convict them this morning, change them, show them their need, and help them to see your kindness in your word as they apprehend the gospel and the the work that Christ did on the cross for their salvation. Open their eyes to, to know you, to love you, and then to desire you and your word. Bless us as we go from here. In your name we pray. Amen.